0: Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. Joining us today is Michael Mechanic. He is senior editor at Mother Jones Magazine and he is the author of Jackpot How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. Welcome, Michael.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So I came across an, an article that were an interview actually that you did recently and it, it was about the problems of poverty and inequality in and it In America, and I knew immediately I wanted to have you on because I want to have disparate viewpoints come on the show so we can have interesting discussions and people can see all the ideas. So the main two things that I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you have an issue with are poverty and the massive wealth disparities between the rich and the poor. Would that be an accurate depiction of your view?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, those are two sides of the same coin, Right. Yes. Um, where, you know, there's deprivation on one end, there's sort of support of the accumulation of wealth on the other. Uh, and so my my uh, subject in that interview is Matthew Desmond, who was a sociologist at Princeton. He wrote a book called Poverty by America, and he won a Pulitzer previously for his book called Evicted, in which he basically hung out, spent a lot of time with poor families who are always under threat of eviction. and Um, you know it was very narrative style book this book is a little bit more based on his idea that poverty is not inevitable that it's our policies that create it and that we can solve the problem which you know I think reasonable people believe is you know a problem in America Um, especially extreme poverty where people are just you know have nothing and they're sick and they're dying and you know they're very insecure in terms of food and housing. So, um, and he's basically saying that's a solvable pro- problem if we find you know the political will and look carefully at ourselves and say you know that we're we're all sort of com- complicit in it in a way.
0: So, would you say that inequality per se is the problem? That if you have massive wealth disparities, that is a problem, or is it? That people are, as you just said, they're very poor. They're going
1: without healthcare. They're hungry. Is that the problem? Well, they're both problems. I mean, inequality is in itself is it, it's it's inevitable. It's I mean, Andrew Carnegie used to say this, right? But it's really a matter of degree, right? Um, as I as I wrote in my book, it's like okay, you have the guy sweeping the floor in the warehouse, and you have the CEO. And of course, you're going to pay the CEO a higher salary than the guy sweeping the floor in the warehouse. Question is, how much more? Right? Mm-hmm. Is it is it ten times more? Is it fifty times, hundred, thousand? At what point, you know, does being in that leadership position give you the ability to just collect ludicrous amounts of money, and where these other guys, you know, minimum wage, which we know has been stagnant in America at like seven twenty five an hour, at least on the federal level.
0: So you kind of stack the deck there when you use terms like ludicrous, because it already, without establishing as a a fact, paints it as such. This is where the argument that inequality is a problem breaks down for me. Suppose that the bottom 50% of the country right now lived as Bill Gates does, and the top 1% lived, say, a thousand times better than they did. You would have massive wealth inequality there, but I don't see how that would be a problem because people then would be living what now we consider the to super rich to be living. So how can inequality in and of itself be an issue?
1: Okay, well, that's a good point. Um, <clears throat> inequality is an issue when we have so much deprivation.
0: So poverty, uh, that, that's what I was getting to. So poverty is yeah.
1: actually what the the issue is. But it's also an issue of the sort of concentration of power in very few hands, which I think is really bad in a democratic society. Um, I actually had lunch with a guy, you know, an old Berkeley lefty uh, the other day. He had read my book and wanted to talk to me about a book he was writing. And it sounded like a very kind of idealistic sort of anti-capitalist book, but he did make a point that was interesting. And that was, you know, the founders in the constitution they set up. They really, you know, they were kind of prescient in a lot of ways, Then they set up certain guardrails. Um, you know, the separation of powers, uh, special protections for journalism because journalism kind of puts checks on corruption. Um, and he said what they what they did not address in the constitution is the fact that commercial interests could gain too much power and kind of suck everything into their vortex and i thought that was kind of interesting observation because that's sort of what we're seeing um there's so much the wealth has sort of become the black hole you know um and it's very hard for uh you know we see how our elections are swayed by wealth and we say how we see how all the attention gets paid to the ideas of people with extremely uh, large resources. So you kind of have that. And, you know, I I think about a guy like Musk, right? He's a smart guy, obviously. He's built a lot of things. Um, But there's sort of this hubris among the people who have accumulated vast wealth that they know how to solve all the problems. And they also have so much power. They have political power because, you know, they can call their senators and the senators are going to return their calls um they have a great philanthropic power which by the way is subsidized by the government with large tax breaks and it's subsidized in a way that you know you well you and i I don't know what your your wealth is but uh, most people 90 percent of the people don't itemize on their taxes so they're not getting a tax break for charitable donations whereas you know if you have all this money you have a billion dollars and you put a hundred million towards charity like 20% or so of that is subsidized by the government. And if you put that in a you know donor advice fund, it just can sit there forever. And um, And this is basically public money that you're sitting on and you can direct towards whatever purposes you want. So, I mean, I'm not saying philanthropy is bad. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying it does concentrate more power in the hands of people with a lot of resources.
0: All right, so there's there's two things that you said in there that kind of caught my attention. The first thing, when you're talking about the power that the, the super wealthy have, and you you mentioned the, their sway over politicians, so are you talking about the power that they have basically to bribe politicians? I mean, maybe it's not done in the form of here, I'll give you this, you give me that, but they can donate large sums of money to politicians, and then politicians can steer legislation in directions that are
1: favorable to them.
0: That's would, right. Would that, would that, that's accurate?
1: I mean, not yeah, but it's it, not even necessarily on an individual level, but on a, a, a group level. There's been research on this sure. that shows that you know, people a people who are I guess you know one and up have a lot more contact with politicians and regulators and yeah. so on than than most people do. They also mm-hmm. have much more confidence that they will be heeded and listened to. And then when you look at the policies that come out of that, they tend to go more in favor you know the the policy interests are aligned with the the very wealthy more than the public i mean they have kind of looked at here are the policy preferences of the public and the policy preferences of the wealthy are different even you know liberal wealthy right mm-hmm. uh i mean for instance like with public schooling i mean a lot of you know most very wealthy people send their kids to private school and so there's a there's less caring for public education and that's reflected in the surveys.
0: Okay. This is, again, another area where with progressives kind of drive me a little crazy. Because the argument is that the politicians basically are corrupt. That you that they're capable of being bought by the very wealthy. They they give favors to the very wealthy because they give them contributions. They'll answer their phone calls. They'll get back to them right away. They'll give them their time. So- we're arguing that we have a corrupt government, but then the progressive solution is to give them more power. I don't understand how that that solves anything. If we concede they're corrupt and then we say, give them more power, it seems like we're giving more power to corrupt people.
1: I'm sorry, what do you mean give them more power?
0: Okay. For instance, if if the government is raising taxes that's they have more power that's more power to extract money from people or if they are in control of the healthcare system that's more power if they're passing laws in terms of minimum wage laws or workplace safety laws or any of the abundance of other regulations that they pass or their oversight of wall street any anything that's giving them power over these things is increasing the power of corrupt people
1: well I'm saying that the system becomes corrupted by wealth. Uh, I'm not saying that every politician is corrupt, but I mean you get you get sort of into that, you know, milieu, and all of a sudden you're being sworn by lobby. You become in a bit of a bubble where you the people you are hearing from are the people who represent special interests, wealthy interests, often. Um, whereas the government as a whole, you know if you if you could take some of the money uh the influence of money out of that system government as a whole is i mean I, I don't know what exactly what the libertarian view is but in my view government is to you know it's for the common good and to pursue things in the common interest um and it's actually it's interesting cuz there's a guy named uh Uh, his last name, Lewis, Joseph, no, Joseph Ellis, who wrote, is a Pulitzer Prize winning historian. Yeah, he he wrote a lot of books
0: about the fathers of the
1: country, right? Yeah. And he wrote a really interesting book called American Dialogue. And a whole section of it was about, which I talk about a little bit in my book, was um, there was a series of letters between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. uh, Then in their later years, and they were just debating about all these sorts of things. And Adam's biggest fear was sort of the accumulation of wealth and the creation of aristocracy in America, which he felt was a massive threat to the New Republic. And he had a very, actually, he had a funny solution. He thought, he thought the Senate was just sort of a joke. And he said, we, we'll give these people, he was thinking a little bit of the House of Lords, was like, we'll give these people ceremonial positions. We'll put them in the Senate where they can do no harm. It was very, it, was, it amused me um, in this day and age. But, um, you know, he said, unless it's rained in, wealth will just roll up like a snowball and kind of take over everything. And Jefferson was, just, oh no, you know, the the laws in the new country that, you know, they didn't have the same kind of uh, inheritance laws as they did in England. You know, the aristocracy will kind of fade away.
0: Well, he believed in natural it'll... aristocracy.
1: Jefferson. Well, I mean, you know, Jeff, Jefferson had issues.
0: <laughs> well, he did. But it, but I mean, you, you have to kind of, if we're going to put the views out there, Jefferson believed in a natural aristocracy whereby, you know, basically a meritocracy where the best would rise to the top. That's far different from the aristocracy that existed in, in
1: Great Britain or in France at the time.
0: But I, I don't, right. we're getting too well, much into hereditary, the historical we, stuff You know, what it. we
1: don't want is a hereditary aristocracy. Yeah. I mean, so, that's kind of counter... To I mean, the idea of equal op- opportunity, which is a very central, <laughs> it's a central, well, I, I won't, I, I hesitate to call it a myth, but it becomes one.
0: Well, um, I'll call because- it a myth. It's an impossibility. It's there, There's no way yeah. everybody can have, a, it, there can be an equality opportunity because people are simply not equal in our natural talents and where we're born and who our parents are, the environment. Okay. Yes. Attractive.
1: But yeah, yeah, actually, actually Adams made that point. Um, he he said, of, of course not, right? But that's not what the declaration said. It said all men are created equal, meaning, uh, yeah, of course, they have differences in abilities and natural talents and so forth, um, potential, but that they should be given the same shot at success as the next person. And that, of course, doesn't
0: happen. So you said something a few minutes ago about uh, that money corrupts politics. But let's say you got that you you did away with that. You got the money out of it. Politicians, it seems, still they want to get elected. And to get elected, they're going to cater to whichever group is going to get them elected. I mean, if, you, for instance, you have they cater to unions. They want to mm-hmm. give the unions power. And they get the union vote for that. That's what that's one of the Democrats, you know, lobby. So by by passing legislation in favor of the unions, they get votes. These aren't necessarily votes that are wholesome or that are to their core beliefs. It's about power. So it it seems to me that no matter what you do, as far as that goes, politicians and people that elect them will always find a way to be corrupt, which is why we've in this country, they went to such pains to restrict their power. But as long as they have power to sell, they're going to sell it, whether it's for money or something else, a vote. So my my point here is, again, back to the the, the progressive uh, sort of belief in the government's ability to solve problems. In order to solve many of these problems, they want to give the government power now there's a great article called unicorn governance by a guy named michael munger and he said whenever somebody tells you that they want the government to do x y or z put in the place of the word government the politicians that you actually know you know your your local congressman or your local selectman whatever and then come back and tell me if that's what you want And it seems to me the answer would be no. I don't want Ted Cruz, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump getting together to solve anything. I don't trust any of them. And it seems to me that that is ignored by the very people who complain about corruption in government when they advocate giving more power to government, which is the way that you would go about... um, Well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I think you would say to solve the
1: problems that you're you're addressing or you're talking about. Well, I mean, the government is always I mean part of one of the big roles of government is to collect money and allocate it in a way that sort of takes care of well both you know in the national defense but also you know to help people who are who really need help um again it's like the common good uh and you know so in a way our our tax code becomes sort of—it's a doc—I uh, call it a moral document. It's really a document okay. that that lays out our priorities as a society, and of course, we are going to fight over those all the time. Yeah, I mean, anyone who expects government to act like a startup, you know, is is going to be sadly mistaken because I mean, government is slow and tedious and grinding, and it—I think it always has been because since the very beginning, you know, we were there was never one big happy family. It was always like intense disagreement, including among the founders. And so government is designed to just move slowly. And we think it's like incredibly inefficient, which it often is, but um, occasionally it comes along and does something great. Uh, Did you ever read Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk? I have not read it, no.
0: I've heard of Michael Lewis, but I've never read the book.
1: Well, his latest book was about the pandemic, and it sort of really, you know, takes a smack at the CDC and how it it kind of became this bureaucratic ass-covering organization. But the fifth risk is looks at when Donald Trump came into office and what he did was so different from what most incoming presidents do. I mean, during a transition, you, I mean, maybe it's just he wasn't ready because he didn't think he was going to win, but. Transition is like a big thing, but you you send a big crew into every department to kind of debrief and figure out what's been going on because most of what the government does, we don't really know. Like it's so vast that nobody can have like a handle on everything the government does. And so each new president sends in, you know, groups into these, into each department and said, let's collect as much information as we can so we can kind of whatever is going on we can either keep it rolling or get rid of it or whatever um and for days like nobody would show up to these departments after Trump was elected like just nobody they were all ready for them they're like come on come on are you going to come or not um and then one guy would show up and you know make some snide comments and leave i mean it was just sort of mind boggling but essentially the the theme of the book was Looking at all the things that the government actually does that we never hear about. And sometimes by statute, like some of the departments have been forbidden from publicizing their successes and the things they accomplished, which is kind of bizarre. Um,
0: But the word you used earlier wasn't, and I think government's inefficient. But the word you used earlier was about corruption, was that when there's money, when people are wealthy, the government becomes corrupt because people are able to buy their their votes. But what I'm suggesting is that money isn't the only currency by which someone can buy congressmen. You could go speak for them. You could uh, campaign for them. You can you just vote for them. You can get your organization to support them. And, as, and the more power you give to a government, the more you're going to have that problem. Of of where they're not voting for, like you said, the common good. They're voting based on a constituency like Donald Trump. You said he did. He did things differently. I would agree there was a lot differently. But at the same time, he was par for the course. He catered to his constituency. He increased government power and he blew up the debt. That's something that every president that I've ever paid attention to in my lifetime has done. So in that sense, he's very similar to them. But I, w- I wanted to ask you about this, though. The, you, what do you th- believe is the cause of m- the massive wealth inequality that
1: you reference? What what leads to that? Well, you know, Desmond's argument is that it is sort of uh, the exploitation of low wage workers is a big part of it. Um, part of it that I cover in my book is sort of, and he, he also references this. Talks about the welfare state. Catering more to the affluent than it does to leaving alleviating poverty, which is the case if you I mean, if you look at the tax code and the way people are allowed to take, you know, capital profits and stash them away in ways that they'll never be taxed, including, you know, the inheritance laws, which some of which are were created almost by accident and are kind of crazy. I mean, we have, okay, whether or not you believe in inheritance taxes, we have these trusts called grantor trusts, which the ProPublica recently found that half of the wealthiest people in America are using. And these trusts allow you to basically funnel as much, you know, billions of dollars in the case of Sheldon Adelson to their offspring without paying a dime in tax. Okay. I have a problem with just sort of the ability to move that kind of money around to people who haven't done anything to deserve it. Um, They're not building anything. They're just, you know, they just happen to be born into the right family. And, you know, again, it comes down to what this country is about. And what this country is about is not aristocracy and dynasty. Um, It's about giving people's opportunity to accomplish something and build something. And when you allow one family to just sort of through the generations carry on, you know, incredible wealth and power, and you actually, in fact, you subsidize that by enhancing the profits, like giving tax breaks on the growth of any, you know, capital income, okay so it, it goes on and on I mean if you if you were to you know I could write and write a whole book on the you know the estate industry yeah um and and the funny thing about the the grantor trusts is they were kind of created by accident um Congress was trying to rein in another kind of trust that people were kind of abusing to get around inheritance taxes and this smart lawyer a guy named Richard Covey uh saw this and he said oh my God they just opened the door to this other thing and he started marketing it to his clients. And one of one of them was uh, Alice Walton, who was the sister-in-law of, of the Walmart founder. And uh, the IRS, he had used it with other clients too, but the IRS challenged her on it and they took it to court and uh, she won. And now everybody uses, they call it the Walton Grat.
0: Okay. So is your problem that because you you wrote in your book i read where you talked about how the super rich pay a lower percentage of taxes on their income than the poor do
1: right so the the super the very very high end the very highest
0: risk so is that is the is your problem that it's inequitable that they pay more or do you just think that they should pay more in other words if if it's just the if the problem is just that they they're paying more, well, then I would say okay. Well, then cut the taxes of the lower percentile, and they'll be paying the same. But it seems like to pay for the type of programs that you want, you would have to increase the taxes on the on the
1: upper echelons. Is that accurate? Well, they should certainly be paying as much as you know the average taxpayer.
0: Well, that that's what I'm saying. You could get you could accomplish that by cutting the taxes of the average taxpayer yeah you could but that would. I mean, mean you know
1: again again it's sort of what uh you know right now right now obviously um we have the Republicans in Congress yelling and screaming about about deficits right well they weren't and, doing uh, that
0: when Trump was in office so exactly I, I mean, that's so that's, they, that's sort of my point
1: you know yeah, so I they, don't they really care, care about me. it when they when the other guy's in power yeah and that's when they want to cut cut of cut. course and meanwhile, yeah. when Trump was in power, they massively cut taxes on the upper end. Yeah, and blew up. So rate they're rate partially rate. responsible. I mean, obviously, you know, the Democratic spending right now is very high. Yeah. It was high coming out of COVID. And it's also high because we've got to deal with the climate problem and massively transform our economy if we want to, you know, I, I don't have much optimism. We're going to accomplish it, but, we're you know, we've got to try. Okay, Because it's so going to you- be more expensive down the road not to.
0: You talked about dynasty a few moments ago, and in your book, you had a whole chapter called dynasty. So I went and looked at this up. So the numbers I came up with this morning are this, according to Fidelity Investments, 88% of millionaires are self-made. 68% of those worth 30 million or more are self-made according to WealthX, and it was reported by CNBC, and 55.8% of billionaires are self-made. Only 13.3% of billionaires have inherited all their wealth. That doesn't sound like a dynastic problem to me.
1: Haven't inherited. Well, they're not inheriting just wealth, but they're inheriting. Well,
0: if 88% of billionaires are self-made, that's not there. I mean, that's not inheriting a whole, that's not a whole lot inheriting. I mean, some are going to. Well, honestly,
1: uh, self-made is a very squishy term and it's a self aggrandizing term. And I actually think I don't believe in the term self-made. Okay. Um, I think it, there, there, I mean, there are, yes, there are a few situations where somebody came from nothing to everything.
0: Well, I but mean, if they're not, we either, but we fetishize well. that. But they're but, but it, if they're not inherited wealth, right? I mean, if we say, if, I I agree. Look, self-made is a very vague term, and a lot of the terms used, as I was looking through, you know, Google this morning, are very vague as far as what counts as inheritance or what counts as being self-made. I agree with you, but that argument cuts both ways. So if we're gonna argue that those terms are inexact, well, then the term this guy inherit, you know, he, he's not self-made would also also be inexact. So to make the claim that it's it's dynastic would be an in, inexact in description of what's actually occurring, but the, the the bottom line is the studies that they've done, or at least that these two studies that I've cited have done, are showing that the majority of people are that are wealthy are not a function of inheritance. So that would undercut the argument that Adams made, and that that you and others have made. I've been arguing about this for years. Uh, th- that the wealthy
1: are just inheriting their wealth it's not true right oh no i'm not right. saying i'm not saying that i mean clearly some people have come from being middle class to becoming billionaires
0: but well the majority it's not just some it's the majority okay but but,
1: but okay look at, i mean there there's a matter of you know i i've talked to people for my book who talk about themselves as self-made but they you know they had solid families they were they they had cheap college you know because you could go to college then you know there were Pell Grants there were you know there was just a lot of especially you know if you were especially if you were a white guy there was just a lot of opportunity um if you were say a black woman forget it right there just wasn't it wasn't there Mm -hmm. um in, in fact like interestingly
0: but then that wouldn't be a family I, I mean, dynasty, though. That see, that's the thing. That's the equivocation. Because what we were originally talking about is dynastic families. Now you're talking right. about a general scheme of society and what they, you know, has been now identified as white privilege. So then you'd be talking about a white dynasty, and that's very different. And that's a different argument to make.
1: But I, I, what I'm saying is, you know, when I look back at my upbringing, you know, I would say it was a middle class upbringing. Okay, but but you know um it, it seemed you know because my mom grew up in the depression mm-hmm. or I'm sorry her, her, her parents grew up and you know she was born in the depression and so she was a very frugal person so i always see it i didn't feel like i was privileged in my childhood but when i think about it i really kind of was you know yeah. um we had a home we had good education I mean, school was cheap. My dad is a professor. I I didn't have to pay to go to college. I didn't have any college debt. I mean, these kinds of things are, you know, passed along privilege, right? And I oh. yeah, you're talking about you're talking That's about different dynasty.
0: though. That's different I, from I understand. dynasty. Yeah.
1: Because because right now you can pass, you know, almost $25 million to your children without paying any taxes. Yeah. So I mean that in itself is kind of crazy to me. Um I mean, I mean that that does see you know the the number of people with over 30 million dollars has grown incredibly and so all that wealth can get passed along in just such a way um in a sort of dynastic manner but you're we're talking about you know the the these the Mars family or the Devosas and things like that who have become dynasties I mean I'm not saying that I'm not saying that we have zillions of them because, of course, we don't because they are the, you know, the, we can only have so many billionaires, right? But once you get you get to that level, these people are all passing dynastic wealth along. And should they be able to? Do you think they should be able well, to? I,
0: well, I do, but that's not really the point. The point that, yeah. that I'm making here is has our system as such led to these dynasties and to the point where it's problematic? And what I mean by problematic, to the point where it's excluding others from being able to enter those that that realm where only di- people that are inheriting wealth can get wealthy, that's simply not the case. The majority of people who are wealthy ha- are, do not come from dynasties.
1: But a lot of the wealth that we see, I mean, take the, the Walton family, is comes from two things. One is paying very low wages to people and not giving them benefits.
0: It's different. That, I'm talking yeah, no, but, but, about, but I'm I, we, that we, that but is, talking about that is dynasties how,
1: specifically. Right, but I'm saying that is how their wealth grows okay. and then there are other there are other there are other systems in place like the charitable lead trust that the walton family used to enrich its children um in the guise of charity i mean there's again with the trusts you know they they're called jackie o trusts. you can look those okay. up uh, but you know the, the walton family was incredibly smart about exploiting every one of these you know tax breaks essentially um to amass wealth and they're doing it at the expense of the government essentially so i mean if you're libertarian you i i don't fully understand libertarianism but it is like very very limited government right yes and so you know if you believe in if you believe in free market capitalism, it's not what we got, you know no, we,
0: what, we is, what we have is
1: what we have is essentially a welfare system for that favors the wealthy
0: well, including not these gonna, families. I get an argument for me about yeah, yeah. welfare. listen, I, I I'm opposed to it, and I'm happy that you said it's not a capitalistic system because people blame capitalism for their the perceived problems in the society but we've never had capitalism. So in order to figure out what's wrong, you kind of have to extrapolate and figure out which part of the system is causing which problem but what i really want to d- d- dig into is this is your argument is essentially a moral argument you you said as much earlier on that the the i forgot what the exact words you said about the tax I code said i said the
1: <laughs> tax code is a moral document
0: it's a moral document yes in in the idea a bu- that, a
1: bu- so it's the budget a presidential yeah, budget
0: in, in the idea for instance that they're they're exploiting workers that's a moral argument you're saying this is morally wrong that they're doing this so is that would that be accurate are you saying that the way that the the, the ultra wealthy conduct themselves in the, in the, that society allows them to do this and to cause these harms you're saying is in, it's unethical
1: i think it's unethical yeah
0: okay this is the key now by what standard what is the standard of judgment you're using to say something's wrong and i'll give you let me just give you a couple examples muslims and jews have their standard the, the muslims take the quran the jews take the torah they both both books tell them that eating pork is wrong so by their standard eating pork is a bad thing to do christians don't adhere to that they adhere to the golden rule for instance and you know it's sort of the 10 commandments but that's their their moral standard. That's what they look to for moral guidance. So when you make the statement that it's immoral to do these things, by what standard are you relying on to make such a judgment?
1: Well, I'm not talking about a religious standard here.
0: No, no, but you, um, you
1: know, you, and ethical This is why we separate, religious. you know. So, yeah, no, 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 no. But... I
0: use those as examples to demonstrate that that's their moral standard. Their moral standard is dependent on religion. Mine isn't. But I'm just when people make the argument that such and such behavior of a capitalist, for instance, it's immoral that he's accumulating such wealth and that he's underpaying his employees what standard leads
1: to that judgment how are you coming to the conclusion that that's immoral behavior? I just you know that's <laughs> that is my personal ethical belief um, okay now that, the, that, this- but but I mean I but but also you know from from the point of view of the role of, again back to the role of government yes to you know to provide for the common good yes which that is also people, a moral okay, judgment. okay sure okay. um yeah but then you have walmart employees who have to be on the dole because the because their employer won't pay them sufficiently to live um i mean Look, at some point we have to like rely on a, a sort of a common ethical compass here. Okay, say but there that. is. But say we don't have
0: that. Yeah. We don't have that. And if you want to convince people that your ethical compass is correct, because you're ultimately advocating that the government do stuff, and the government uses force to do stuff, that's how they accomplish things. Taxation, they accomplish by force, It's a, or a threat of force at the very least. So if you're saying you have a moral argument for why it's okay for the government to use force against people, then what I'm saying is, then make your case. Tell me how you're arriving at that conclusion. And you say, a second ago, well, that's just my personal belief, but I don't think that we should be having the government use force against people based on Michael Mechanic's personal
1: ethical <laughs> belief. No, that's right. Um I, I I quote a guy in my book named Jeffrey Winters, who studies sort of uh wealth in society all around the world. He said, he said basically throughout history, wealth has accumulated in societies and then been protected in the past, you know, pre-government who was protected by, you know, oligarch types with private armies, essentially, you know the Medici, whatever um, and who could basically used basically physical force to take and keep whatever they wanted. Now, we have organized our society to avoid that kind of thing, but to some degree, uh, putting government in place to protect those same interests, the interests of the very wealthy, now you don't need a private army anymore because if you can get the government to do it for you um, and pass the laws that will protect your wealth.
0: But you're arguing that the government used the same amount of force just on the other side. You're actually not arguing that the government should be used in self-defense. You're arguing that the government should be used to extrapolate or to take wealth from people and to pass laws like minimum wage laws. And you're doing it based on an ethical, uh, an ethical judgment. And what I'm trying to, to get to is what is that ethical judgment based on? Because if it's just based on you don't like it. Then that's not acceptable to me. Now, if you've got an ethical argument for and a standard to judge by, well, then I'm open to listen. I well, personally have a standard. You know, like
1: every every major religion, if you want to talk about religion, every but you major said religion,
0: religion, religion was out of it. You said we're not going. By well, religion. I mean, okay, yes, religion.
1: but actually, our, our system was founded on values that have been always sort of part of religious ethics, and it's true that you know you don't. Mixed church and state, but you can still have. There, there, there are values that say you don't let one person feast while the other starves, I and mean, that you should
0: stone somebody. Look, I mean, should we happen. should we
1: be able to murder people? Right? No, no, of we, course not. We can all agree. So that's one of the commandments. No,
0: of course um, not. But I, but the reason I would say we shouldn't be able to murder people is because I would say say this: an ethical code is ultimately a code of values that gu- guides human behavior. A value. Right is what is what morality is. And I would say values are objective. They're validated by reference to a standard. That standard is life because life is what gives rise to value. And therefore, if my life is a value, I have a right to defend it. I have a right to sustain it. And if somebody initiates force against me, I have a right to retaliate. And I would say- But that, do you think
1: you know, you're- but, but if you are rich and powerful, is your your life more valuable than no, poor no, of, someone else's No,
0: right? no, of course not. But here's the thing. Our government is supposed to be based on the idea that the government doesn't have any rights that aren't delegated to it by the people. Would you agree with that? That's right. Okay. Yeah. Do you now, if I am hungry or if my mother well she's not alive, but if my, if my friend is sick, do I have a right to come and stick a gun in your face and rob you to pay to feed me or to put my friend to pay his hospital bills? And you're going to say, hell No. But if an individual doesn't have that right, and if the government only has rights delegated to it, then the government can't have that right. But that's what it does when it taxes.
1: It's, the government it, it, has a right to tax. because How that's... does it
0: have a right to tax?
1: You just said, I don't have a right to tax that's... you. So how do they have a right to tax? It's, called, it's in the Constitution. I there. understand
0: it's in the Constitution. Yeah. I'm saying that's wrong. What I'm saying is that you asked me earlier about a libertarian perspective. What I'm saying is the government has no rights that aren't delegated to it by people. An individual has no right to use force to get somebody to do something for him, to pay yeah, him. We've delegated to, to our laws. government yes. the right but, to, but how to can tax. You de- but how can you delegate a right to a government if you don't have that right to begin with? And that's why I asked you for your ethical argument, because I figured, I had I had a, a hunch that it was going to break down on this issue. Because you conceded that I don't have the right to rob you to pay for things that I want. You conceded that the government doesn't have any rights not delegated to it by the people, but then you say the government does have a right to tax. That doesn't
1: stand up to a very basic syllogism. Well, I mean, if you, if you accept that we should have a government, and it was agreed upon by the founders that it should be as such right it was I'm agreed saying... upon by
0: a very small subset of the population well, I, okay at that so time. you
1: you would scrap the constitution entirely
0: if if it were up to me if if you say what is my personal belief i would say that we should seriously amend the constitution i don't think it's all bad and i think those aspects of it that provide for mutual self defense are very good and we should limit it to that because ultimately, the government does not have rights outside of rights that individuals have. And individuals do not have the right to take property from other people. They don't have the right to interfere in contracts between other people. They don't yes, have the right to... Yes, the, the, to the interaction between...
1: It, 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 just like personal finance, and this is used by politicians all, sudden, all the time to say, well, you have to balance your household budget. So the government should have to balance its budget. But the government is works in a very, very different way than a household budget. Sure, that's, they can steal to, of...
0: to make up for the deficit. <laughs> I can't, I don't I mean, have that. You know, that's okay, right.
1: I can't do right. that. I, I mean, like, okay, so, I mean, it, libertarian views, uh, they have some great aspects. Um, but again, just like we don't live in a Pure, you know, we, there, there's no pure capitalism here. There's no pure libertarianism either. I mean, where no, do, but, where does that leave us? No, but there's I no mean, pure. What you're you would,
0: ad, if, you're advocating for change. You're you're saying. Okay, I'm just saying.
1: If you had, if if all we did was the libertarian view, just providing for the common defense. Yes. You know, people, we're animals, and we hoard resources. I mean, it's it's very instinctive. I think our altruistic instincts are a smaller slice, but by and large, people are motivated by accumulating wealth and power. We've seen that in this country, and you even think, even when you ask people well, what's important, which is them, why, by watching.
0: the way, we shouldn't be giving power to the government. I'm sorry, Michael. I'm sorry we're we're out of time. I would listen. If you're willing to come back, I'd love to have you. I love the the back and forth I, I love the you know different viewpoints i thank you very very much for coming on
1: yeah, where can people
0: where can people find you
1: uh, where they, can they find me yeah, uh, well so i for brother uh, jones they, and i have a website um it's actually the the, the easy uh, shortcut is readjackpot.com so if you're interested in the book and that's um, right right behind out. you
0: and it's actually yeah, it's it, I have it written here it's jackpot how the super rich really live and how their wealth wealth harms us all listen I recommend it read it because it, whether you agree with it or not it's good to get you know different viewpoints don't live in an echo chamber thank you very much Michael for being here everybody like subscribe share till next time this is the rational egoist signing off